I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, UK government borrowing skyrocketed to more than £62 billion in April with a cash outflow of more than £102 billion, which is twice the level of a year ago. And that's just one month. In the US, they've acted on a $2.2 trillion stimulus package that amounts to half the total federal spending last year. And let's assume that more is on the way. But how will it all be paid for if governments won't simply write it off? They'll have to pay it back, and that could mean more austerity. And what of emerging markets where raising debt isn't so easily done? Do they just have to watch as their economies crumble? Are we going to see a wider social divide than ever coming out of COVID-19? I'm Phil Dobby. We'll look at that today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. Welcome along. So, Steve, let's let's assume that modern monetary theory isn't put into practice at the end of uh, at the end of this pandemic crisis. That central banks use quantitative easing to pick up the debt that bond markets might not be so ready to buy into, at least not without the the price falling. And that's the key issue, isn't it? You know, to to keep interest rates low, central banks are going to have to keep on holding on to that uh, government debt for quite some time. Otherwise, on the open market, we're going to see bond prices fall, yields would rise, and it would get out of kilter with the official interest rate. So that sort of means we're going to be stuck with quantitative easing for quite a long time, aren't we, to pay for this whole thing? Well, I mean, you know, what you're actually talking about is the government uh, buying lots of bonds. Quantitative easing is buying bonds off the financial sector, uh, which drives yeah. up the price and drives down the interest rate. So, uh, and, and to actually have that happen, what you've got to have is the Treasury issuing lots of bonds so that they can be bought by the central bank. And yeah. uh, this well, is, that's happening. Yeah, you know, trillions of dollars. Yeah, yeah. And, and and they and they obviously want the interest rate to be low because they. They, you know, if there's a lot of government debt, they want it to be a low, at a low interest rate. And similarly for, for everybody else who's had to borrow through this crisis, yeah. everybody is unified in wanting a low interest rate rate. Yeah, well, I think, and, and that's that's certainly going to be, I mean, it's going to, I think it's going to happen anyway. Uh, uh, you know, the interest rates are already hitting uh, negative levels. Uh, people are looking yeah. for safe havens for their money. And it's not people, financial institutions are looking for, you know, low volatility, fairly reliable, expect to get the money paid back uh, assets right now. So they're bidding up the cost of, of price of government bonds, which drives down the interest rate. But the intriguing thing I'm looking at, actually, uh, and we're talking about the you know, how are you going to pay for the coronavirus later. I think the real danger is the um, uh, how's the private sector going to pay for the debts it runs up during the, during the coronavirus? And there's quite a remarkable mm. piece of data on that front. Uh, which is is a weekly data series from the uh, St. Louis FRED, with their wonderful FRED database. Uh, It's it's abbreviation, which is easy easy to say, is TOTCI, T-O-T-C-I. Think Tootsie. 
so TOTSI, TOTSI, O-T-C-I, commercial and industrial loans, all commercial banks. It's a weekly series. And it just shows you what's actually probably happening right now. But nobody, I think, if you have to agree, unless you're uh, running a company trying to produce vaccines, you're not only trying to borrow money and do a sales pitch to the bank about how it's going to be a great return on their debt. This is firms having to borrow because they simply haven't got the cash flow coming in. So they're basically effectively yeah. whacking up their overdrafts. Okay, this 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 series um, peaked at was two point four trillion dollars uh, just before the uh, coronavirus crisis began. So it's when so if you look at uh, January, let's say February twelve, two point three five seven trillion. It is now three point oh seven nine. In other words, it's jumped by about eight hundred eight hundred billion dollars. Uh, in a matter of a week, a matter, a matter of a month. And that's, that's just the level of debt that firms are running up to be able to continue mm. operating right now. So that's the real how do we pay for it is how does a commercial sector uh, survive the impact on its cash flows of the, the coronavirus. Well, and of course, we've seen central banks and governments getting into that as well by saying, well, okay, we are going to, for example, buy more corporate bonds now as well as government bonds, or we will offer very low interest rates or interest rate holidays to, uh, to try and ex- ex- extend loans but but obviously that's not a one year commitment is it that's uh, i mean if you if you look at uh, you know how they're paying off government debt then that's 10 20 30 years you know, perhaps they need to do the same thing for uh, for corporate debt as well. In that case, I think we're going to be, well. Not to, it, it's a, the term is twenty or thirty years, but you know, you can buy a twenty or thirty year bond and sell it uh, the next minute. So it's it's yeah. it's not it's not a question of the the term. It's uh, the the bond itself doesn't matter. It doesn't take how long you're going to actually hang on to it. Often these things are held for matters of days when they've got dates of, of thirty years. But if you do, right. if you but, yeah, if you look what's happening, the um, in terms of excess reserves, for example, um, there's just a, a, as there is for commercial debt, there's just a gigantic explosion in excess reserves. And again, the coronavirus has reversed the reversal that the central banks are trying to do by quantitative tightening. So if you go back to uh, July 30th of 2014, that's when the um, excess reserves in the American system peaked at 2.7 trillion. During what they call quantitative tightening, they got it down to a low uh, in September of last year of 1.3 trillion. Uh, it has now gone up to unprecedented level. Everything is unprecedented these days of uh, 3.3.3.2 trillion. So yeah. it's pretty much doubled. And it may be, and order. that's just the, uh, possibly just the start. You yeah, know, the yeah. the Democrats are trying to get another three trillion dollars of. Uh, uh, of government spending, so there's going to be even more bonds, more, even more de- debt issued mm. onto the onto the market. But this time, I mean, the QE that that is needed to try and keep those uh, those interest rates low, that's going to be around. They're not going to be able to get out of that in a hurry because we're now talking about such unprecedented levels. They, they can't unwind that in a hurry. This is going to be with us for years, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And again, the same thing applied to QE itself because I mean, if you look back and see when, when did the level of excess reserves explode, it was when Bernanke started to take his own research seriously, having a level of reserves uh, basically flatline at really um, just a billion dollars, one or two billion. Uh, in one week, he increased it to 600 billion. And uh, in one month to eight hundred billion. It, that was back in no two thousand and nine. It then it it peaked 
five years later in 2014. And then they began the unwind process, which we finished in 2020. Bang, we're back up again. Uh, so you see a, a data line, which literally is a flat line, pretty much at zero at the resolution of the graph for 30 years, and then bang, over a five-year period rising. I think a similar thing is we can expect this time around. It'll be years where the government is simply having, whether it wants to or not, having to issue more bonds, having to finance its spending being far greater than its taxation revenues, and therefore running up the the government debt side of the balance sheet and freaking out all the deficit hawks. But it will. But America can get away with this, can't it? More than more than other parts of the world. So we'll look at those other parts of the world in a second. Mm. But if QE is going to be around for a while. And it's going to, you know, it's not going to be taken off the balance sheet at, at the central bank for quite some time. You know, the argument in normal times, I mean, we're in deflationary times now, of course, because of the because uh, of the economic shock. But normally you'd say, well, OK, if the central bank is exp- expanding the money supply so much, then that would be inflationary. Uh, but that's not happening. So then that does raise the question, uh, given that that is seen as the only side effect of modern monetary theory, and that's not going to happen. Why not have modern monetary theory? What really is the difference between a long-term QE program, you know, maybe 10 years, versus modern monetary theory where the the government is, in effect, borrowing and, and just not paying it back? Well, I mean, as people, as, as, as proponents say, and I agree with them, uh, it's not a, it's not a theory. It's a description of what actually happens right now, and then says what you should do mm. given that description. But yeah, um, we we are. Uh, well, except you know, there is the difference, though, isn't there? Because with modern monetary theory, you are like you, you expect to wind back QE. With MMT, you're not. It's 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 it, it, it's it, in effect what QE is happening, but without the winding back of QE yeah, later yeah, down the track. You don't really need it. I mean, there's it, it's it, it's a question of you finding a more appropriate word than debt to describe what the government accumulates on one side because you're basically uh, telling people we want you to take our money uh, so, so you can go and spend it and at the same time we've got to balance our books by saying well let's sell you our debt as well and, the, and the, you know, we're going to hang on to the debt we'll, you get a rising you know, the assets and liabilities side rise at the same time. But I want to just talk about one thing you mentioned a moment ago, the, are we in inflation or a deflationary environment? That is also just looking, again, literally off the charts because uh, we have been in, in heading to a more and more deflationary environment over the last uh, um, you know 20 years. But the spike in inflation, if you again look at the consumer price index uh, for urban consumers and other time series on the... Uh, on the FRED database, that was running back in January at uh, two thirds of a percent in December, at one third of a percent in in January, 0.2 percent in February. This is before we can say the virus hit. It's now at mm. minus. We're about sorry, we don't get the graph to stabilise here. Uh, minus two. Minus two yeah. percent. So we, we, we've, we've gone massively into deflation again, faster than any time in history. And so the people who are worrying about inflation being uh, so, and so I'm sorry. Uh, if you take, if you're buying yeah. inflation-adjusted bonds, you're going to lose money. Yeah, no, I think in the UK it's been 0.8 percent year on year is the is the latest uh, inflation number, which is uh, close to an all-time low as well. Mm. So um, what about the impact on exchange rates? So this relationship between issuing lots of bonds, trillions of dollars worth in the United States, and the exchange trade if if america issues lots of bonds in us dollars then uh, uh what does that do, do to 
to monetary flows, money flows in and into and out of the country? And what, what does that do to the dollar? Well, that's actually more coming from the export side of things. Is America going to be running a trade deficit, which it normally has done? And therefore, will it need to be selling bonds and net selling its bonds to the rest of the world to finance that? And there the question is, will there be exports? And this is, this is the, um, mm. the, the, the weird thing about this world we're leading into because, of course, uh, America is mainly an importer. Uh, will it be importing from China? Um, the, 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 the actual practical issue yes. becomes scary because if you, you know, you don't know, when you export, you, you've got to put you've got to be not just goods on ships, you've got to put sailors on the ships to sail the stuff across. Um, that's, that's going to be okay going from China to America, so long as you don't have any um, physical contamination of the Chinese sailors in the American ports. The opposite direction, um, you're going to have – will sailors be going on ships when there's an odds that if they get sick, uh, they're going to be dead before the boat gets to the other end? Um, this – Right, but I mean, but let's assume though that we are going to see our way through this. That somehow uh, that the, the, this virus is contained in some way, and so the, these those, those issues subside. Mm. So we do see a, res, a resumption in trade. Then that that's going, that's going to become less of an issue. But but if we but we would still be holding this this massive amount of, of of government and private debt. So what does that do to the to the U.S. dollar in the long term? Well, I think again, this is it's every everybody in this case, pardon the pun about boats, but everybody's in the same boat. Uh, so, like if you look at the Australian government, what are they talking about? Whether roughly a two trillion dollar economy, three hundred billion dollars worth of new bonds are being issued. Uh, everyone yeah. is going to be increasing the level of government financing they're doing because the private sector is going to be coming out of effectively out of out of cold store out of out of a coma uh, into the future and in that situation uh, whether governments want to or not they're going to be running large deficits they're going to be therefore issuing bonds to finance it they're all going to be issuing far more bonds than they've uh, than they've but but people are going to be far more interested in buying us or maybe australian bonds than they are for example buying them from uh, turkey or malaysia or uh, or, or Brazil, for example, yeah, and, and, yeah. and those con- th- those countries got the interesting situation, haven't they? Because they can say, "Well, okay, we, we're going to need to offer. If anyone's going to buy our bonds, we're going to have to offer a, a high yield. We're going to have to raise interest rates, but that's going to make their own government debt more costly. So they're, they're they're between a bit of a rock and a hard place. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if you've got a country like Brazil, uh, which is, I mean, and Argentina being the, another classic case, of course, where you're normally running a trade deficit, a substantial one, you nobody accepts your bonds and dominated your own currency. So you issue bonds in American dollars. Uh, but, of course, there's always the fear that you're going to default uh, to begin with. And then if you're running a trade, trade deficit, you're running out of the dollars you import anyway. Um, in that situation, then, yes, you're going to have to offer sky-high rates to get people to buy your, buy your bonds. And it actually may be easy for this country to think, screw it, we'll just default on the ones we currently owe. Um, mm. So uh, that that is because they're actually right now they're doing the exact opposite, aren't they? In emerging markets, they've been dropping uh, interest rates, and that, and obviously part of that is because they want, uh, like everywhere else in the world, they want to say, well, okay, uh, our businesses need to borrow to survive. Uh, we don't want to give them a high interest rate. So, mm. I mean, as I say, a rock and a hard place. I mean, they they're pulled in every every direction. Yeah, I mean, and and this is. Uh, you know, a form of fragmenting the, the planet that uh, the coronavirus is doing to us because we, we, we haven't had a supply shock of this nature beforehand and a demand shock at the same time. It's, uh, we're, we're knocking out 
uh, effectively 70% of the economy. Uh, and when we're, we're doing it to people who normally are living month to month. It's the, it's the workers and middle class who are the ones who are back home being told they can't work. Um, and therefore, they can't meet their financial obligations, which then flows through to the landlords. They're renting their flats off and the banks, they're, they're financing their mortgages through. And suddenly, um, it, it just, it, it's just, it's breaking apart. It's not the sort of thing you can say, um, you know, you can simply address by uh, issuing more government debt with the other side or by or by debt forgiveness. So I think we are really in for a financial tsunami after this thing. And places like India, you know, which had an interest rate of 5%, uh, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to, are you going to buy uh, bonds in India or would you take much safer US debt, particularly when we're seeing the rupee has fallen at least 7% this year? You just wouldn't want to take the risk, would you? Yeah. Again, I think it, I think the, the countries that do and don't uh, crush the virus are going to be an important issue we haven't had to think about beforehand. So, if you think about uh, countries which are in a situation where their economies can recover rapidly, it's countries that have mm. managed to crush the virus. And the outstanding example there, in terms of the, the sort of significant economy. Uh, well, one outstanding example is Taiwan, but by far the most outstanding example is where the whole damn thing began, China. So mm. if you look at it, I mean, the safest bonds to buy might well be Chinese bonds because that's going to be the first economy up and operating. But China is still dependent on exports, of course. And so if the rest of the world's not doing well, then China's still going to have trouble. But then uh, but that China is re-engineering that a great deal, aren't they? They're, yeah. They're, they're, they're yeah, really yeah. focusing now. In fact, the, uh, the National People's Congress uh, is outlining a plan this week to get Western China on a par with the eastern regions by 2035 with the same uh, public service levels, the same uh, level of in- infrastructure connectivity, the same uh, living standards for, for people. So massive investment within their own country. Uh, and that uh, clearly is their focus. They don't really care what uh, 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 Donald Trump does because they're looking inwardly. Well, they've also dramatically improved their own industrial standards in the last 30 years. That was the whole reason for uh, the export-oriented program they held. And they've been dramatically successful. Have you ever been to China, by the way, no, yourself? I no, Hong Kong's the okay. closest I've I mean, loads of times, but never been. I mean, okay. Okay, well, I was in China, as I think, in, 80, in, in uh, November of 81. And we were taken to uh, things like, for example, light bulb factories where they were still doing hand assembly of light bulbs. Yeah. And, uh, and, and uh, furniture factories, which were, you know, pretty old-fashioned sort of 1950s-style furniture. You go there these days and the place is just a gleaming monument to high tech. Yeah. And... Uh, what they have done is they've got that productive capacity uh, by by exploiting the trade deal with America, and they can now basically say, well, we actually just, you know, we basically wanted the industrial uh, know-how, the might, and the technology. We've got it. Um, uh, we, we we don't actually need you guys anymore if we generate demand domestically sufficiently. If we need to pump up the government spending, we'll do that. They don't have the deficit hawk fears that the Americans have. Yeah. So they could well just to turn inward, but turn inward with an extremely powerful industrial engine that America cannot compete, does, does not, does not competing is not the issue, can't compare to. And, 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 that's, uh, and to your that, point as yeah, well, that, you know, they are bouncing out of this a lot quicker than uh, many other parts of the world, and therefore their response to fund it uh, is, a, is a lot less than it is in the United States, for example. So uh, we're not seeing this huge spike in government debt. They're issuing a, a trillion uh, renminbi in, in credit through the People's Bank of China to small lenders 
to protect mm-hmm. them against their non-performing loans. But that's really almost about it. There's no sort of big bazooka approach happening in, in China. So even though China has, you know, has stacked up a lot of debt over the years, it's not adding to it in the same way that, uh, for example, uh, the U.S. is. And they've also got the fact that most of their banks are state-owned anyway. So yeah. if they want to write off the uh, <laughs> write off the debt, uh, they don't have to worry about the private institutions going bankrupt because they're not private in the first well, place. Well, it is. I mean, that's, so, that's the interesting thing, isn't it? It's such a closed system because who's buying government bonds in China? It's the it's mainly the Chinese banks. Uh, who owns the Chinese banks? Well, it's the Chinese government. And the state enterprises as well, the same sort of thing. They're being directed to do it. Mm. So, you know, in, in that sense, they've got a capacity to uh, succeed out of this crisis, uh, even though this is where they, they, they were the country where it began. So um, that's, that's, that's the fact we just simply haven't had to factor in before. I did expect China to do better on a whole range of fronts because of its successful industrialization by exploiting America's stupidity over its own um, manufacturing base. But this has just really accelerated that whole process. So what about the fate then of the of emerging markets? They could come out of this pretty badly, couldn't they? And then what is and, and who's there to help them? If they can't raise the the, uh, the money they need to protect their own industries, uh, if, if they can't issue the bonds, uh, then what is going to happen? Well, I've got a feeling we're going to see many, many more defaults now because partly uh, one reason you continue servicing your debts and you continue kowtowing to the World Bank is that you're trying to continue down the course we were on before the coronavirus hit. Uh, And that was a course where you're trying to raise everybody's living standards. Uh, You know, you had ambitions to turn everybody into middle-class consumers over time. Now you just want people to stay alive. Mm. Uh, and it's quite possible that Aftermath is going to say, well, we produce most of our basic needs. We don't produce the elaborate uh, stuff. We, we can't imagine us making our own Lamborghinis. But we need, we need to get, you know, t- transportation people can use, uh, food services, tick, we've got that uh, relatively under control. Um, there, there may be a decline in the interest in the level of industrialization that these countries had beforehand. And therefore, they can just say, well, if we can't pay these debts, we'll default on them. So I expect to see, you know, it's still a gamble, obviously, but I would not be at all amazed to see many, many more developing countries defaulting on their debts and basically saying, no, you know, we don't care. Right. Um, but but in the short term. But then I, but aren't they going to find it difficult to, to, to create more debt? Uh, I mean, you know, aren't they going to be seen as a sovereign risk? Well, yeah, but again, what's going to happen to global exports and global trade? This is the, the, the again, the, the, my expectation is we're going to see a plunge in both exports and imports all around the world. Um, you know, there's going to be much more emphasis upon producing domestically. Uh, you know, America's learned its lesson, of, not, maybe it hasn't, it should learn a lesson uh, about not being able to produce its own face masks and ventilators when this crisis hit. Uh, but the, uh, the, and, and the, in fact, because international trade in, involves shipping, and shipping involves putting people on, on vessels where they, if, if, you know, it will take a three weeks to four weeks for a journey, uh, you, you can't run the risk of somebody being infected on that boat. So you're going to have to quarantine staff before they leave. If somebody in quarantine actually has the disease, then there goes that particular part of your crew. Uh, it, it's going to make exports and imports much, much more difficult. So I expect to see a huge plunge in global trade. Coming out but, of this, but, I mean, but, but if if that is the the reason the reasoning behind, I mean that that will pass. I mean the the pandemic in, at some point 
will pass. Uh, and if it didn't, then th- you get over that issue. You could just presumably you could just automate uh, boats floating around the world if that if that becomes a, an issue. But the idea that we will shift uh, international trade to such a degree. I mean, it's not easy, is it, to start producing domestically everything that you're importing? And if we were able to do that, the countries that would suffer again uh, are going to be the emerging markets, aren't they? I'm not so sure. I mean, I, I think it, it, depends, it depends on the complexity of what you're actually producing. Uh, if you're talking about wanting to produce, uh, you know, semiconductors, uh, CPUs, uh, mobile, mobile, mobile phones and things of that nature, um, which are extremely high tech and highly transformed, and that's the direction in which your manufacturing is moving, then yes. But if you're saying we're going to go back to the stage when it produces basically sanitation, uh, food, and electric power, um, even, even, you know, with things like uh, solar cells, it's, they're much easier to produce than, than complicated CPUs. Um, that might be something you can actually do much more domestically. Mm. And then you say, well, we don't have the same need to rely upon foreign trade. We don't need those same, you know, the, the, the ball and chain of the debt to go with it. Where's so, it but where's my you know, crushed avocado on toast going to come from? That's, I mean, that's not going to... That, that's your not, own backyard, mate. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to grow enough uh, avocados in my greenhouse. And and, no. and, that, and hence my point, you know, the, 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 the developing nations that are, uh, you know, there's an agricultural base to a lot, to a lot of them. Um, they're going to suffer if the if the Western world's not buying from them. They're going to suffer in terms of their their exports, but if they also decide they don't have to import as much or they don't want to import as much, then the gap between their exports and imports can decline. So you're going to tell them to do without and, and, iPhones and, and, and the like. Yeah, or, or or you know, or it's going to be um, you know low low tech produce your own. You know, I, mm. iPhones are obviously an issue because they're highly transformed. But iPhones, where are they made? They're made in China, uh, and and you know, there's 38 countries involved in making an iPhone. I think two of them are developed, and the rest are all developing countries. Uh, they can themselves decide to fit this together. And again, it's going to be the hodgepodge of countries that avoided the virus that are most likely to be able to produce this stuff, selling to the parts of the world that both didn't avoid the virus and are the main centres for demand. So um, you know, again, I just see this weird world coming out of it um, but, but because the virus is yeah, yeah. but I mean but, you, but what you're talking about is something that's not going to take a year or two years you're talking about something that might take a decade and you'd hope that in a decade we will have COVID-19 licked in, in some way um, perhaps not perhaps we will adjust to living with it but uh, I wonder whether it's, it, it, the, the transformation is going to be as extreme as you're suggesting yeah, I mean, I'm I'm looking at a map, and I literally am looking at a map right now on the ncoronavirus.org website uh, run by Yanib Bayam, and he's divided the world into uh, those that are succeeding in crushing the virus, those that are in transition and are not doing a particularly necessarily good job, and those that are disastrous. And... Um, <laughs> The disastrous ones included the UK, mm. happy you, mm. Sweden, uh, and most of Eastern Europe. Um, the successful ones, but also, of course, America and uh, America and, and Europe in general aren't doing all that well. The country, and they're likely to have you know, problems containing the virus, or they're going to be virus affected for a, a substantial period until such time as a vaccine is maybe invented. Um, but the countries that are clear of it. Uh, you know, China, Taiwan, Australia, New Zealand, Thailand, Sri Lanka. Um, yeah. These countries might well find themselves, you might be getting two world trading blocks coming out of this, mm. virus to virus and non-virus to virus. 
um, <laughs> in terms of you know, the other way. Yeah. It, you, you can non-virus can export to virus, but not vice versa. Right. Yeah. Well, we'll see. The World Bank's saying that uh, 60 million people in the world are going to fall into extreme poverty as a result of uh, the coronavirus. They're going to spend $160 billion to assist 100 countries. Um, but this isn't going to be a handout. How, how does the World Bank operate when it's uh, when it's saying, yes, look at us, we can give you all this money? They, they attach conditions to it, don't they, which are not necessarily in the interest of those 100 countries taking that money. And mainly the conditions of austerity, saying you've got to cut your budget, cut back your budget, cut your spending. Yeah. Um, so those conditions are going to say they do the exact opposite of what the Western world is doing in response to the coronavirus. So I think the World Bank is going to be told to go go get packing. It's it's always been it's been unpopular in Asia ever since the Asian financial crisis because quite rightly a lot of those countries regarded the. Uh, the, the conditions that came with the World Bank loans is making their recovery from the crisis far worse. And the country that did best out of it was Malaysia, which basically told the World Bank to get uh, get jerked. Um, and um, and Indonesia is equally uh, very, very negative about the conditions from the World Bank. So I think their offers of, of loan money are going to go wanting. And is, are we going to find basically massive stagnation just about everywhere as a result of this? Are we all going to turn Japanese where... I mean, obviously, Japan has had very high government debt, well over 200% of GDP, and their economy has been stagnant for all of this century, well, since the 90s, really. But are we all going to go the same way? You know, I mean, we were sort of before the virus, but is this just going to steal that seal that fate? Are we are we all going to turn Japanese? Um, yeah, I, I think that certainly the countries that have got the, a bad dose of the virus might well have that happening to them. The ones that didn't, I think they're going to be going to say we've got to rebuild and, and, and rebuild a domestic industrial structure as best we can, or a regional one, and they might actually do moderately well out of it. I'm still bracing my bracing myself. How are they going to fund that though? If they if they can't raise the capital internationally, how are they going to fund it? Again, they can, the government can produce the money they need domestically. It's not the money that's hard mm. to produce. It's the goods and services. It's the industrial skills. And on that front, uh, countries like Australia and particularly Australia, uh, but also New Zealand are going to find it, hell, we don't know how to make anything anymore. Whereas the Chinese are going to be the ones who say, well, we can make virtually everything uh, and we're willing to share that skill with you at a cost, and the cost might be partly your political yeah, sovereignty. Yeah, but how, you, you say that they can create that money. If I'm, if I'm a small country, I don't have uh, much in the way of US dollars, uh, and nobody's got any interest in buying any bonds that I issue. How am I going to raise that capital? You, raise, you can raise it domestically. The, the, the thing is you've got to then have the industrial capability, and I've got a feeling China is going to see this as a great opportunity to say, well, we can. you, you don't worry about not having the dollar, uh, we can give you the yuan, but it comes with the price of you being our, effectively becoming our vassal. Not that they'd use those terms, but I can see China strengthening itself dramatically courtesy of this because there's no point relying upon the Americans anymore. You only want to rely upon mm. America if you're trying to export to America or export to Europe. If that's no longer an issue and you're simply trying to build up your domestic productive capabilities, then you're best to talk to, you know, it would have been Germany in the old days for industrial skills. Now it's China. And I can see them, you know, not worrying about the fact that they are giving some of their you know, remindy away to do it. Uh, they'll be buying influence at the same time. And what about Europe? I mean, they've, as you've highlighted, uh, the UK and Italy and Spain, you know, places that have dealt uh, very badly, and Sweden particularly now, uh, dealing very badly with, uh, with, the, with this whole crisis. But also on top of that, you've got uh, you know the, the the way that the EU is structured. So they've got this 500 billion uh, euro recovery fund, 
which involves the European Commission basically borrowing on the capital markets and then supposedly distributing that to the to the needy nations uh, to the south in the form of grants rather than loans. But then you've got to get agreement from all 27 members of the EU. And even though France and Germany have sort of come around to that way of thinking, lots of them haven't. It's probably not going to happen. It's paralysis. Uh, yeah. So they've it's. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, an administrative paralysis, isn't it? Yeah, and that's 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 been the objective of the EU all along. <laughs> They've wanted to paralyze the government, try and stop stuff happening. Yeah, and the trouble is stopping ha- happening when somebody's dying of a heart attack. Uh, you're not stopping the mm. heart attack; you're stopping the heart. It's already dying, mate. Uh, you've got to go and reverse and do resuscitation. And uh, the last person I want to be resuscitated by is a European Union bureaucrat. So they they really are completely caught out. Uh, their whole structure is there to. to restrain government spending and the only way that they're going to survive this crisis is turbocharging it and they are not about to change direction so i think europe is going to suffer very probably worse than anywhere else in the world except america Uh, and this is the interesting thing this is a real i don't see much as a crisis of developing nations i see this as a crisis of the developed nations they're more relied upon long supply chains. They've deindustrialized to take advantage of cheap wages. Uh, now they've got to reindustrialize, and at the same time they've got to hang up about their own capacity to create government money, which is the one way they're going to be able to do it in the aftermath to the coronavirus. It's yeah, yeah and it's, Europe's got that worse than the UK, for example. So uh, relatively, uh, even though the UK has got a, a, a rocky road ahead, it's uh, it's perhaps. Uh, less of a rocky road than the European Union that they uh, were part of until recently. What about the companies then that are going to fold? So, for, for example, if Virgin Atlantic collapses, I mean, it's going to be hard to find a buyer for them in the short term because nobody's flying. But ultimately, mm. someone's going to buy them. But I wonder about uh, businesses in other parts of the world, like in Brazil, for example, where we could see a, a lot of destruction of the, uh, of the economy. There is a developed nation that, that because they've got the, the virus in a bad way, that it could take them decades to recover. Uh, and businesses that collapse there, nobody is going to be in a rush to buy them. That's And, you know, when we see situations like that emerging, that obviously that's not good for anyone. If economies crumble... Um, then, uh, then, for example, the, the United States exports $30 billion worth of goods to Brazil. They don't want to see Brazil collapse, but if, if things turn bad there, then uh, the U.S. is going to suffer the consequences a little bit as well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, again, they're relying upon, you know, rural agricultural exports from Brazil. Its capacity to export might be crippled by this virus. Um, it's, it's, it's really a case that where it shows that there are alternative ways of, of handling, uh, a crisis like this. You know, the Maggie Thatcher was famous for the phrase, there is no alternative, Tina. Uh, we're seeing Tina alive and well all over the planet. And the ones that uh, said you can't beat the virus, uh, countries like America and Europe have proved themselves correct. The ones that said you can have also proved themselves correct. And I think it's it's that decision to fight the virus and decide to crush the curve, as Bani, uh, Yanni Abayam says, uh, that's worked. And then we, we, we've really got a, you know, a very fractured planet where, the, um, um, where I, I, I just don't think the old um, you know, globalised way we think about it, the exports and imports equation, is, is – I think it's misleading to think about the planet in the future – uh, in the way we thought about it before this virus. 
and um, you know, but, but yeah, but countries more, about it more like Donald Trump, more more as a series of closed systems. Well, yes, yeah, it's, it's it's been closed by Donald. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, and mm. <laughs> Donald was the first virus. Coronavirus is the second. <laughs> Same effect each time around. So on those corporate collapses, then mm. companies like Virgin mm. Atlantic. I mean. You know, maybe an airline is a bad example because uh, because they they will be slow to recover. But companies that collapse as a result of all of this, I, I mean, should governments prop them up, or do we just say, well, someone else is going to buy them? There'll be a fire sale. Someone else will pick them up and probably do a better job of running them. Partially, that that's going to be true. But at the same time, you're going to have to write the debt off dramatically. And if you do that, the financial sector collapses. And that's why I find that yeah. data on the uh, on the on the level of. Uh, outstanding credit in American corporations right now quite stunning because you know to go pretty much it's, it's you can say it's a trillion dollars in a month increase in the level of corporate debt in America. Now the level of corporate debt in America is you know only of the order of about fifteen trillion. So you're talking about a you know six seven percent jump in one month in the level of indebtedness of American corporations. If they fold, you see our classic story. If you owe the bank a hundred dollars, you have a problem. If you owe the bank a hundred million dollars, the bank has a problem. Um, so the financial sector itself could come tumbling down um, in the aftermath of this crisis. So but, but, um, but that's been the approach for a lot of governments, hasn't it? To say, well, okay, let's mm. protect and central banks, which are obviously it's part of their role, is to ensure that there's uh, that, that banks don't collapse. So uh, let's let's help bail out the banks rather than bail out the companies. If companies collapse, someone else will buy them. The debt gets written off. The banks suffer. But if we look after the banks, then someone else will look after buying up those companies and uh, and reworking them. I, I think that's the philosophy. I'm not sure if it's a good one or not. I don't think it's affected this time around because often these things are leverage buyouts. I mean, you've got to borrow money from banks to do it in the first place, and the banks aren't yeah. going to be lending. So I think the credit system will break down in the aftermath of this crisis. And the idea that the private sector can go out and buy other bits of the private sector that has folded, I think, is going to be pretty fanciful. So we're going to be back in government rescues like in 2008, and the governments which decide to be tardy on that are the ones going to see more of the corporate sector fold. Yeah, it is going to divide the world in a big way, isn't it? Just, I know, obviously, by nature of your back, your background and my background, quite a few of our listeners are in Australia, and you're saying Australia could do quite well out of all of this. But, of course, the the, the the approach has got to be within Australia. Grab the opportunity, and I'm not sure that's going to happen because there's going to be too much focus on government debt and austerity. Yeah, and also, I mean, what they're trying to do, of course, the most important thing to revive in Australia is the housing market. You know, no, mm. so long as the housing house prices are rising, everything's hunky-dory. So they're already getting in there and trying to rescue the house housing market. But again, one of one of my uh, revelations from living in Thailand right now and looking at the cost of living over here, um, the reason it's so low is house prices are low. Uh, the level yep. of household debt is low. If you keep high house prices, you're going to have high uh, costs uh, to maintain your rentier class, and you're not going to be able to produce the industrial stuff you need at uh, in, in, at, a, at a profit. And so, this, I, I think they're going to be hitting a, a crossroads over this whole thing. The one thing which will save them again is the housing market, because uh, goodbye the Canadian market for Chinese buyers, hello the Australian market, and that could double or treble the amount of uh, foreign buyers for the Australian market. But it will come at a price of us of, of, China, of Australia becoming mm. a Chinese vassal, and politically, they're not particularly. Yeah. 
yeah. be ready for that yet. Uh, but we, I mean, they're going to continue selling iron ore, and and in fact, you know, if Brazil is not in a position to be able to sell iron ore, they could potentially be selling twice as much of it to China. So that's one possibility. Australian economy, yeah, Australian economy yeah. could do really well out of all of this. Great to talk. Interesting. It sounds like we're going to be stuck with this for quite some time. The the repercussions of this are we're going to are going to be felt over the next decade, aren't they? Indeed. Good to talk, Steve. Welcome. And next time, we're going to look at the psychological impact of the coronavirus. What is it doing to people's mental health? And what sort of impact will that have economically? And is it something that's been given enough consideration? We'll look at that next time on the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.